Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Pastor Tim said a lot there that I don't know if it's true. Um, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean that you uh, know what you're doing all the time. And uh, professional preachers, I don't really think of myself like that. I think of myself as a pastor who gets to preach. But uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning, and especially this morning. I know last time I came to be with you and had the privilege of preaching, uh, we were down at the high school. You guys were still meeting at the high school. And so it's good to see your new digs and uh, see what's going on. I know some of you, your new digs are on your couch there at home. But uh, for those of us that are here, it's wonderful to be with you, and especially on this day where Pastor T and Christy and the family are uh, in North Carolina. Uh, for those of you, I'm sure most, if not all of you, are aware, but uh, laying his mom's body to rest this morning. And uh, and so um, thankful for God's providence working out this way where I could step in and um, serve your church. I want you to know I do bring greetings from the entire Village Church uh, in Denton, Texas. We pray for you often. We love you. We think about you. Uh, I assume even this morning as our saints are gathering uh, now that uh, part of what we're doing is praying for you as we often do. And so it's really a joy to be with you. And um, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. So uh, if you're new to the Bible, Revelation is at the very end of the Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, um, when Pastor Thabiti told me um, <clears throat> that what he'd like for me to preach this Sunday was something around the incarnation of Jesus, I went straight to this passage uh, in my mind, asking if that was okay, and he said yes. And so Revelation 12, I'm going to read verses 1 to 17, and then we'll walk through those. And if you've never read uh, this revelation that's at the end of our Bible, uh, it is wild and beautiful. And uh, obviously, we just sang a song that uh, a lot of the language comes from this vision that this man named John, he wrote in a letter to seven churches. And uh, so this is a letter that was written to seven churches. It's a prophetic letter, an apocalyptic letter, uh, but a letter nonetheless. And uh, one of the more striking uh, visions in all of the visionary activity that happens in this revelation is here in chapter 12, which really in many ways is the very heart of this vision that we call revelation. So if you're looking here with me, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, I will Read to verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child 
But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And, you know, there may be few passages of Scripture, few words of the Lord more fitting for us to read as God's people during the season of Advent than this one here that is really, again, as I said, at the very heart of this vision of Revelation. And I'm actually hopeful some of you might make this your Scripture and your Christmas cards this year. Right here, verse 4, 12, 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Season's greetings, right? And, uh, and, and I kid, obviously, but, but, you know, this vision of Christmas, this vision of the advent or of the coming of Christ here in Revelation, it is, even as Brother William mentioned in his prayer, it's very different than our culture's vision of Christmas. You know, this is my first time in DC during Christmas time. So I was, I was kind of eager. I wanted to go see the national Christmas tree and uh, just see what's going on around town. And as I flew in, uh, got in late last night, the flight was delayed a little bit uh, or a lot of bit and uh, got in late last night. And as I, as I was coming in on the tarmac there at Reagan, uh, I looked at my window and there were these fireworks happening over the city. So I could see the Washington Monument. I could see the Capitol. I could see these, you know, these fireworks happening. I thought that was really nice to welcome me and uh, welcome us in in that way. And, uh, and so I, I, I was like, what's going on? So I took a little video. I, I sent it to a, a pastor friend of mine who's on the hill. I said, hey, what's it looked like it was up there. I was like, what's going on in your neighborhood? And, uh, and he texted me back. He said, uh, a Nats game. I said, brother pastor, baseball season is over. And uh, it's been long over. I know that because I was actually at the last game of the baseball season in Houston when they lost. So for an Astros fan, that was a tough, uh, tough deal. But uh, no, that wasn't what was going on. There was no Nats game. It was like a Christmas celebration. And so the fireworks were red and green and, you know, they were all over. And certainly as I've driven through town and had a chance to get around the neighborhood a little bit, even this morning, you know, Christmas uh, is here. And, uh, and yet, Man, the vision that our culture gives us of Christmas, where we're sort of celebrating with warm colors and, you know, drinks and stockings and all sorts of things, uh, it's very different than this one here that Revelation gives us. And, you know, despite how our manger scenes even, or all the other holiday aesthetics, they are striving to sort of domesticate Christmas, the season of Advent. And Christmas itself, it's not merely as warm and fuzzy and soft as the fireworks show in our culture tells us. Jesus' birth is not merely a good children's story. It's not a quaint, cute story. And again, contrary to the Hallmark Channel and all the other scenes that the Christmas cards provide, this would not, what we're reading about today, it would not make for a warm made-for-TV special. No, saints, Jesus' birth, more than we can imagine, is God's invasion. Jesus' birth, to use this apocalyptic language, is God's violent assault on Satan, on sin, and on death, these enemies of God and of his people. And, and therefore, Jesus' birth, it carries with it a forceful announcement to the powers and the principalities and the entire human race that our God is in control and that our God loves his world and his people, the people in it, and that Satan and sin and injustice and death, they don't have the last word in our lives. That's, that's what Advent is all about because... Even as you guys talked about last week, as you ended your study on Esther, Jesus has come to see to it that God's deliverance and justice will ultimately correct every crooked system and protect every righteous person. Amen? 
And so though filled certainly with tidings of comfort and joy, Christmas is also forceful. It's violent. It's aggressive. And getting this right for us as Christians matters. And it matters because a domesticated, soft, kind of happy, clappy vision of Christmas simply cannot provide us as God's people the comfort and the courage that we need to persevere through the difficulty and the darkness that exists in our lives and in the world. The type of darkness that, again, we're remembering and we're looking in the face as Christians in this season in the life of the church that we call Advent. Because you see, and and I'm assuming maybe you guys have talked about this a little bit, but the season of Advent, which is the beginning of the Christian year, season of Advent always begins in the life and the history of the church, the beginning of the year for Christians. Advent always begins in the dark. The Christian year always begins with us as Christians looking in the dark because Advent serves as this reminder, this honest reminder of where we live our lives in the day-to-day. And we live our lives in the day-to-day in what John called here in this passage in Revelation 12, the wilderness. This is not the promised land. Amen? This is wilderness. And, and, and we live here in this wilderness, in the darkness of what we call this in-between time in the history of what God's doing in the world. The time between Jesus' first advent. Advent is simply this Latin word that means the coming or the rival. So we live between Jesus' first advent, his first coming, and his second advent when he will return not as a baby, but as Lord and King and Judge and Ruler of all the nations. And this in-between time that we live in, this time of waiting for our Christ to return, this wilderness is dark, and it's difficult, right? There's crooked systems, and there's crookedness in our own hearts and in the hearts of our neighbors. And this crookedness, this darkness, this wilderness, it often leaves us as God's people wondering, where's God? How long, O Lord? And God, if you have truly come in Jesus Christ, why do things remain the same? Why does evil continue? Why, Why does injustice continue? Why does sinfulness in our own hearts, why does it continue? Or even as one Belgian priest said when his hand was trembling in anger as he laid it on the casket of one of the little girls who was slowly and systemically systematically starved to death in a dungeon by the man. This priest laid his hand on the casket, trembling in anger, and he said, is the good Lord deaf? These are Advent questions. These are questions that we ask in the wilderness, and these are questions, beloved, that our culture cannot answer, but that the gospel of Advent can and does. And as it does, it gives us as God's people the vision that we need to persevere through the wilderness because it leads us to look the darkness and the evil and in the injustice in this world and in, the, and in the, our lives and in our own hearts it, to, to look it in the face and to see and interpret and orient our lives, as you guys have been talking about through Esther, to orient our lives around the hope that lay beyond this wilderness, that lay beyond this darkness for those of us who are God's people, the hope that God's deliverance and God's justice will ultimately correct every crooked system and protect every righteous person. And this hope that we look to is a hope that was brought about and revealed to the world through the invasion, through the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And church, this is the good news that this vision in today's passage vividly with all this imagery, graphic even imagery, this is the good news that this vision in Revelation here proclaims to us. And it is news that as we step into Advent together, it's news that leads us to sing in the darkness. Not act like the darkness is not there, but as we look to the hope that this vision provides, it leads us to sing. And so let's walk back through here. Uh, this majestic and graphic vision of Revelation 12. And uh, again, 
if you uh, have never read Revelation, this will just be your introduction to some of its imagery, and hopefully it'll be one that settles you and anchors you in some profound ways as we just hear God's Word. So if you're looking there in verse 1, it starts out with a woman, a dragon, and a baby in the first five verses. And so let's let's try to wrap our minds around what's going on here in, uh, in this vision that John sees and that he communicates to these churches. It says in verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. So this is a, the way that John often introduces new visions that he's seeing and communicating to comfort these churches. And here's the sign. He says, a woman majestically clothed with, with the sun with the moon under her feet, this cosmic language, and on her head a a crown of 12 stars. And this woman was pregnant, John tells us, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And so you stop and you think, okay, what is going on here? Who or what is this woman? And who or what does this woman represent in this vision that God is communicating through John to these churches. Well, this glorious woman, we know, represents the people of God. And we know this because this is who the, we know this is who the woman is because mostly the the crown there that she's wearing of 12 stars, right? The number 12 and the, the multiples of 12. If you read this revelation in its fullness, throughout the revelation, they're used symbolically to represent the, the people of God. And certainly the, the 12 stars here that are that are on her crown, they bring to mind the 12 patriarchs, right? Or the 12 tribes of Israel from whom the human ancestry of the Lord Jesus is traced back. And we know that it's the Lord Jesus, as we see down in verse 5, who this woman's carrying in her womb. And so that's the Messiah, the baby. This, this is the Messiah whose birth and appearance in great turmoil amidst great suffering that the woman, the people of God, they were longing for, right? They had been looking forward to the coming one, right? The one who would rule with iron, as we'll read about here in a minute. And so that's who this woman is. It's the people of God who are longing for and looking forward to their deliverer coming, their God himself coming. And then John tells us more. He says in another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. So you got a woman, now you got a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And so you read this, you think, okay, what's going on here? And who or what is this dragon a sign of? Well, what we know from ancient literature, Jewish and otherwise, is that dragons were often seen as these arrogant and combative creatures, and they often, in literature, represented evil and chaos. And like this dragon here, dragons and other creatures in such literature, they often had multiple heads. So this is something that's not unfamiliar to the readers in other literature. And so the dragon John sees here, he has seven heads. Again, a number which throughout this revelation has symbolized fullness. And so the seven heads of this dragon seem to emphasize the fullness or the magnitude of the threat that this dragon poses, as does its ten horns, horns which symbolize power. And so the seven heads and the ten horns here, they actually echo, maybe you've read this before, uh, they echo the same number of heads and the same number of horns of the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7, an apocalypse from the Old Testament, whose imagery this revelation echoes throughout. And and then there are seven diadems on the dragon's heads. Did you notice this? And so these diadems here seem to be kind of a counterpart to the woman's 12 stars. And diadems, if you don't, you're not familiar with those, those, those were bands that were uh, uh, worn around the head by earthly kings to symbolize those kings' claim to power. And diadems were often worn uh, in making rebellious and treasonous claims against the reigning sovereign. So would-be kings, would-be sovereigns who wanted to rival those that were actually seated on the throne would actually wear diadems as a sign of treason and as a sign of wanting to usurp the authority of the one that was reigning. And yet, who is this dragon? Well, again, we don't actually have to interpret that much or at all here because John tells us plainly down in verse 9 that this dragon is the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
And uh, I assume some of you may know that Satan and the devil, those are both names that Jewish and Christian tradition give to the chief angelic opponent of God, right? God's archenemy, so to speak, in Scripture. The one who in Genesis 3, Satan deceived and lured mankind to sin, and who afterward God declared a prophetic sentence of judgment on. Remember, God told in Genesis 3, told the serpent that one day, through the offspring of a woman, he would raise up one who would crush the serpent. This dragon that John sees here is the same ancient serpent that God declared that over in Genesis chapter 3, that verse of Scripture that's known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel of the Scripture. And so that's who the dragon is. It's the archenemy of God who from the beginnings, as these diadems show, he has treasonously rebelled against and sought to rival God, to usurp God's authority. Right through his creatures, through his creation, through any means available, the serpent has been after this for a long, long time. And in the way that John describes this dragon here, like the mighty Leviathan from Hebrew folklore, he's got this tail sweeping down, this massive tail in this vision, this imagery sweeping down, knocking down stars. What John's doing is he's making clear is that evil is real. Satan is real. There is an enemy behind the crooked system and the crooked hearts of human beings, right? And, uh, and, and that we should, John, I think part of what he's to these churches, to us as a church, what he's, what he's reminding us is that we should take him, we should take evil and the powerful one behind evil very seriously. And look in verse, at the end here of verse 4, what the dragon's doing. It says, in the dragon, this dragon, this massive beast, stood before the woman who was about to give birth. This is where it kind of gets graphic. She's, a, she's giving birth. She's about to give birth. And the dragon's there so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And so the imagery here suggests that this dragon knew exactly what was happening with this woman's childbirth. The dragon knows that the child she is giving birth to is the Lord Jesus. The offspring of the woman that God had already told this dragon back in Genesis 3, he would raise up to crush him. The dragon knows this. And that's why the dragon is standing ready to devour this child because he knows this child being born will put an end ultimately to his rebellion against God. He knows, the dragon does, that this child will bring God's life and God's healing and God's righteousness and God's justice and God's salvation, God's kingdom into this world, and in doing so, bring an end to evil and the evil one. He knows this, and so he's there, he's ready to devour. And John tells us in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, the one who, as Psalm 2 puts it, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's imagery, a rod of iron. Ruling with a rod of iron is imagery of ruling in justice. But before the dragon could devour him, it says in verse 5, her child was caught up to God and to his throne, church. And what is described there in that last little phrase of verse 5 is a summary of what we as Christians, we call the gospel, the good news of Christianity that is told more fully in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? What it's talking about here is the Lord Jesus, the one who was born to the woman, he did not get devoured by the dragon. Amen? And we know he was trying, and he was using Herod, and he was using all sorts of means to try to get at Jesus, to literally devour Jesus. And yet Jesus survived. And when he was grown, just like God promised the serpent in Genesis 3, he conquered the dragon, Jesus did. And he conquered, as this revelation in other places has described, in the most unexpected of ways. Jesus conquered not through violence. But through his nonviolent, loving self sacrifice 
on the cross when he was crucified in our place. Jesus conquered not by violence, but by being slaughtered like a sacrificial lamb as a ransom for us, his people. Amen? And if you're here this morning, and again, I know we've in multiple times, Pastor Tim has said, if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you've never heard any of this, any of this story even, and how it makes sense of the way we as Christians uh, see and move through this world, we'd love to talk with you more about this gospel and why it's such good news that our Lord was born in great turmoil and lived only to die for us in our place for our sins. We'd love to explain more about why that's such good news and why that news is actually what unites us to God and makes us so assured with all the comfort it brings that we're going to be with God forever on the other side of this wilderness, that in all that's happening, he's leading us to himself. And so we'd love to talk with you about that before you leave this morning. But friends, this is an amazing thing that Jesus Christ, he died. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead. And after he was raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus ascended and was enthroned in heaven. And that's what the end of verse 5 is talking about here. He was caught up to God and his throne. That's what it's talking about, where just as Revelation 5 that we sang earlier from, right? The song that we sang, the Revelation song, just as Revelation 5 pictures, Jesus was caught up to God and his throne and he was exalted. This is sort of the zenith of the gospel that we know as Christians, that Jesus Christ was exalted and he was enthroned as the world's true Lord. That's what it means for him to be caught up to God and to his throne, that he was, he was enthroned as Lord and he was given by God authority as Lord to bring about God's sovereign plans and purposes and judgment, his kingdom on earth. That's our Lord. That's Jesus, that's what he's doing and where he's at right now. And all of this good news is assumed in this one little phrase here in verse 5. So church, think about this. You think about Advent. Man, make some fireworks go over this if you want, right? Hang some mistletoe. Well, maybe don't do that, but, you know, whatever you want to do. But, you know, cozy up to this, but then see this. The dragon was ready and waiting to devour and to stop the coming of the Lord Jesus and God's kingdom through him, but he failed. Jesus was caught up. He was born, and he was caught up to God and to his throne. And church, this moment where Jesus was caught up to God and to his throne, it is the hinge on which world history and our lives in it it's the hinge on which the gospel of this revelation and the whole Bible centers. This moment right here, Jesus has conquered. And the good news that we utter and proclaim, not just that we share, but that we declare as Christians, is that Jesus is the world's Lord. And family, this is how Revelation views the birth and the advent of Jesus. Not, again, as a cute children's story, but the story of our faithful God, fiercely, aggressively, providentially demonstrating his authority and power and love and righteous and justice, righteousness and justice by entering into human history to provide rescue for a people and for a world who desperately needed it and still need it today. And verse 6 explains why we still need it today. Because if all this has happened, again, coming back to these Advent questions, why, God, do things continue to happen? If Jesus is the Lord and he's been caught up to God and his throne, why is there such darkness? Why are we still in wilderness? Well, verse 6 and following tells us why. Look at verse 6. So after Jesus was caught up to God and his throne, it says, and the woman, verse 6, again, representing the people of God, after she gave birth and Jesus was caught up, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished by God for 1,260 days. Don't get lost in the days. Throughout this revelation, 
this symbolic number, 1260, which comes from, again, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 12, other you know numbers similar to this one, this number of 1260 days, it simply represents the period of time between when Jesus was caught up to God and when he will return in his second advent to destroy all the enemies of God. Right, you talked about that last week, when Jesus will return and he will destroy, not all of our enemies necessarily, but all of the enemies of God. In this 1260 days, it represents this time between Jesus's first coming, his first advent, and his second coming, when he, God's deliverer, will come and correct every broken system and lead every righteous person into that land of promise, that land of salvation that we long for. But here, after Jesus is born and then caught up to God, the woman went to the wilderness during this time to hide, which brings to mind when the people of God in the Old Testament did the same thing in the Exodus. Right? What did they do in the Exodus after they were delivered? They didn't go right into the land of promise. They went into the wilderness. Right? God led them into the wilderness after they left Egypt. In church, this is why the season of Advent and why the Christian year always begins in the dark. Because again, Advent sets the tone for the entire Christian year by reminding us and reorienting us to our location in the story of what God's doing in the world. Right? And location, not just in real estate, location in terms of where we are in the history of the world, it matters. Location, location, location. It matters. And Advent reminds us of our location. It reminds us that we as God's people now, we're located, we're living our lives in this wilderness, in this in-between time, between the two advents of Jesus. This time that many theologians will call the sort of already and not yet tension of the Christian life, that Jesus has already come, right? And through his death and resurrection, he's already won the victory of God over Satan and the powers of sin and death. He's already been exalted to his throne, and yet his victory, though already, is not yet fully realized. And it won't be until he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, which is why this wilderness, why this in-between time is still filled with so much darkness, because it's wilderness. It's wild. It's not promised land. And here, after Jesus is caught up to God, the woman goes to the wilderness to hide in the place that she's going to be nourished, just like the people of God did in the Exodus. And then quite literally, after this woman goes into the wilderness, all hell breaks loose in heaven. Look at verse 7. It says, Now a, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against this dragon. And the dragon and his angels, they're in heaven, mind you, fighting back. But the dragon was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them, for the dragon and his angels in heaven. It's an amazing thing here where, where John pictures the victory of Jesus on earth as he was raised from the dead and was caught up to God, the victory of Jesus is actually reflected in this war in heaven. And for these seven churches that this revelation was written to, this was a common assumption in the day, that, that wars on earth were reflective of wars in the heavens. And, uh, and so a few things here just for us to notice as we think about this, that firstly, the vision assumes that the dragon, the Satan, has angelic allies, which we often call demons as Christians. And the dragon and his angelic army are pictured before the victory and exaltation of Jesus, anyhow. They're pictured as having a place in heaven. This is sort of strange. But the Old Testament, including Zechariah 3 and Job chapter 1, they picture as well Satan as sort of a member of this heavenly court in God's throne room, in his courtroom, and they describe Satan standing before God and doing what? Accusing people of sins that they had committed or testing people to make them sin in order that he might make accusation against them before the throne of God. And in fact, Satan in Hebrew is almost equivalent to a term that means prosecuting attorney. 
not to say if there's any of you here that are prosecuting attorneys that I'm trying to connect you to Satan, but uh, you just want, you know, there's a sense in which this imagery makes sense, even in terms of the language. And part of what this imagery here reminds those in these seven churches that this revelation was written to, as one writer put it, is that the dragon and all of his supernatural accusing was lurking behind the accusations and slander that they would they were enduring on earth. A lot of what was going on in these seven churches, a lot of what's going on in the church today is that they're absorbing slander, right? They're absorbing all sorts of accusations, not just here in the United States, but around the world, our brothers and sisters that are in prison this morning, right, that are, that are not able to gather lest their buildings be burned or they be put in prison without trial. They're absorbing accusations all the time, like these churches in Revelation were, both from their neighbors and even from the governing authorities. And Satan's accusation in heaven is behind the lies and the deception even that had led some of these Christians in these seven churches, like the Lord Jesus himself was, to be sentenced to death by the beast. Right, And so what John's wanting him to know, what he's wanting us to know, is behind all of this beastly accusation and slander that they, that we experience on earth, was the father of lies, the dragon himself in heaven. And of course, what we know as Christians is that Satan's accusations could always be rejected by God. Amen? A God who could cleanse and vindicate people of even their deepest, darkest sins and stains. And yet the imagery here after Jesus, again, is caught up to God in victory, what happens in heaven is that God in heaven, after Jesus' victory, God not only rejects Satan's accusations, but because of the victory of Jesus, God ejects Satan from his heavenly courtroom. That's what it said. He no longer had a place after Jesus was caught up to God and to his throne. So in contrast here to how God actually prepared a place for the woman in the wilderness in verse 6, in verse 8, God takes Satan's place from him, so to speak, in the heavens. And the way that God is envisioned here as removing Satan's place is through Michael and his angels. And again, if, if you've never read the Bible or maybe you're not familiar with this, Michael was one of the best-known angels in Judaism and in early Christianity. In fact, in Daniel 10, he's called a prince. And in Jude 9, he's called an archangel. He was thought, many thought, in the tradition of Scripture interpretation, he was belonged to a special group of four or seven archangels, kind of like the Navy Seals of the angels, right? That many thought Michael to be the chief of this group of archangels. And he was responsible for protecting the people of God by fighting against demonic armies, which is what John sees here in this vision. The effects of the Lord Jesus' exaltation to the throne of God and his own enthronement is described as a war breaking out in heaven between Michael and the dragon. Look at verse 9. And it says, And the great dragon was thrown down. I like that. He was thrown down, this ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down, down from heaven to the earth, and his angels, they were thrown down with him. So the result of Jesus' victory, of his being caught up to God and to his throne as Lord, which summarizes Jesus' entire life and ministry, is that Satan and his angels are thrown down. Jesus is exalted. Satan is thrown down, smacked down. I like that imagery. It says it three times in the one verse. And the point is clear. There was a beatdown in heaven, and the dragon was the one beat down, thrown down. And despite his great power, he was overpowered and conquered by the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ whose victory is symbolized here by Michael's eviction of the dragon and his angels from the room, throne room of heaven. So I don't want you to get confused here. One writer put it this way. He said, quote, Michael's victory that we see here, Michael throwing the dragon and his angels down, is simply the heavenly and symbolic counterpart of the earthly reality of the cross. He said, Michael, in fact, is not the field officer who does the actual fighting, but the staff officer in the heavenly control room who's able to remove Satan's flag from the heavenly map 
because the real victory has been won on Calvary by our Christ. End quote. And because of the victory of the Lord Jesus, the conquering of Satan through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, the dragon no longer has place in the heavenly court. Just like the vision Jesus saw in his own earthly ministry. Remember Satan being thrown down from heaven like lightning? Here it is in vivid detail. And you know what? As this is explained, John then hears a voice announcing and singing about this good news. Look at verses 10 and following. This is a song. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority, the exaltation of His Christ as the world's Lord have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And not only that, but they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love their lives, love not their lives, even unto death. Isn't that amazing? That the gospel of the victory of the Lord Jesus reflected in Michael's smackdown and throwdown of the dragon, it's sung about. And, and shockingly, church, the song describes the church, us, participating in the victory. I think the beat Pastor T said something about this last week, that, that, that we get to participate in the crushing of Satan, right? That you will soon crush Satan. He will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, our feet. Well, the same thing happening here. You see it, that, that, that the testimony, the song describes the church participating in this victory over Satan through the testimony and witness of those who love not their lives even unto death. They conquered by the blood of the Lamb, right, through Christ, but also by holding on to their testimony, their testimony that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord, which gets you killed in first century Rome. And they held on to that testimony that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord. And church, this is an Advent chorus, right? And this chorus fills the suffering and the sacrifice of the slaughtered saints with the highest meaning imaginable. And it proclaims to these seven churches and the sacrifice of those who've loved not their lives unto death that it's not in vain. That their suffering for the name of Jesus Christ is not in vain. It's not trivial. And indeed, even in our own lives, what can seem like a waste in the eyes of the world, what appears to be a humiliating defeat, is part actually of the throwdown and the conquering of Satan. Right? These witnesses who's lost their lives in allegiance to the Lord Jesus, they are joint conquerors with the Lord Jesus, all because of the blood of the Lamb and what He's done for them. Right? They were so confident that their lives had already been saved by his blood that they picked up their crosses and followed him in his example of his self-giving death all the way to their own death. They loved not their lives even unto death. And they conquered because of it. That's amazing, isn't it? And what's the point of all this imagery? To encourage us to keep carrying our crosses to keep enduring, to not give up, to not grow weary in doing well, to not shrink back in the face of all the headlines in this darkness that lead us to ask, how long, O oh Lord? That's the point of all this. And beloved, this vision of the saints overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and by holding to the word of their testimony, it would have provoked these seven churches to do the same to not compromise their allegiance to the Lord Jesus, even at the cost of their own blood. And verse 12 talks about this. It says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Right? Because Satan's been thrown down. We're rejoiced. The heavens are rejoicing. And yet, woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil's come down to you. So Satan's out of heaven, but now he's on earth in great wrath. And he's come down in great wrath because he knows that his time on earth, these 1260 days, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, it's a short time. In other words, the victory of the Lord Jesus in its resulting throwdown of the dragon, it makes the dragon furious. Church, you have to know this. 
We have to see this, right? So he- that's, that's why heaven is called to rejoice as the dragon is evicted from the throne room and earth is called to lament. Because the dragon's throwdown throws him down from heaven to earth. And this isn't good news for those on the earth. Because the dragon is not only enraged by his defeat, now he's desperate, right? And he's desperate because, again, he knows that this time until the Lord Jesus returns is short. That Jesus is going to return, right? He already missed his opportunity at his birth to devour him. And now he knows Jesus is going to return. And even as Revelation 20 talks about, he's going to throw him into the abyss and the lake of fire. He's going to destroy this dragon along with all the other destroyers of the earth when Jesus returns. And so the voice in heaven says, woe to the earth and the sea, for the dragon has come down and knows his time is short. And then look at verse 13 and following that explains this. It says, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, I love this. It's like he kind of comes to, like he gets, he gets walloped, right? He gets smacked down and then he comes down, he falls down and he kind of wakes up and he gets, he gets his bearings and he realizes that he's been thrown down to the earth. And then it says in wrath and desperation, he pursued the woman, the people of God who had given birth to the child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, that's language that amounts to 1260 days, this period of time between the first and second advent of Christ. But then look at it. Look at the serpent. He pours out water like a river from his mouth. He's after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth, the creation itself, came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. I love all this vivid imagery, symbolic imagery. And and what it's saying is, though the dragon is on earth seeking to devour the people of God, right? To steal, to kill, to destroy, the imagery here communicates in this wilderness, how God is committing to preserving and protecting his people. Just as he did in the Exodus, right? The imagery of revelation and this vision here comforts us that God will nourish us, that he will lead us through this wilderness, even take us up on eagle's wings. That's language that comes from Exodus 19 that's deployed here. All of this imagery is meant to communicate to the seven churches and to us that our God will, in our vulnerability in this wilderness, He will not forsake us. He is with us. Church, He is with you. And He will carry you and lead you and nourish you. And all those He has sealed and marked off as His people, He will lead them through this wilderness. And He will preserve and ultimately protect us through all of the fury and all of the assaults of the dragon, which of course doesn't mean that God will keep his people from all forms of suffering. We know that. It doesn't mean that God's going to keep his people from all vulnerability, right? Again, the wilderness, by definition, it's wild. It's chaotic. It's not comfortable, especially when there's a furious dragon on the prowl chasing you through it. Right? It's one thing to be in the wilderness. It's another thing to be in the wilderness when you know there's a pack of wolves around you and after you. The latter is the imagery that's given here, but not wolves, a dragon. And yet, despite that, the vision communicates that God will ultimately protect us and keep us. And as the waters of the dragon's fury come, and they will come, God will, just like he parted the waters of the Red Sea, he will protect his people and lead his people once again through the waters into the salvation and the promised land of new creation. And again, church, perhaps this is just a moment as we begin to conclude where we can stop and ask, do you trust this in your own life? That those waters that are coming after you or that you feel like even this week you're drowning in, God has promised to lead you through. He's promised to make a way. way. He's already made the way through Jesus Christ. And that circumstance that you're looking at tomorrow morning when you get into the office, that relationship that you're avoiding, or at least the conversation that you know you need to have that's a part of it, 
whatever it may be that's causing you to distrust or to be tempted to not trust what this vision is telling us here, that God is with us and he will provide for you. He is leading you through the wilderness and he's not leading you and he's not led you into the wilderness to leave you for dead. He gives us each day our daily bread. and Even today, he's promised to provide that, and he is. Look at verse 17. We're almost done. It says, then the dragon, so this water comes, the earth swallows it up, the woman's protected. Then the dragon became furious. (laughs) Dragon's having a tough day. He became furious with the woman. And he did what then? He went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. All the rest of the people of God. So again, you, you sort of landed here, and it's like this dragon, he failed to devour the child. He has now also failed to devour the woman as God is bringing about the deliverance of both. And he is now furious about his failure. I don't like to fail either. In fact, I, I, I fear failure. I'm working through it, but, uh, but I hate failing. When, and here you go. It's like, man, this enemy, he's furious about his failure because he knows that the decisive battle has been won by the Lord Jesus. And now like an angry and a wounded and a shamed animal, he is lashing out. Like that's not the kind of animal, that's not the kind of, whether it's a dog or a dra- you don't want to be around that kind of animal. Angry, shamed, right, uh, wounded, and the enemy. The, 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 the vision here is now this dragon's more frantic and urgent than ever, and he turns his rage toward making war on the rest of the offspring of the woman, right, the younger brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. Those in these seven churches and around the world today, including us, who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And beloved, all of this here at the end in verse 17 taps into the why questions of Advent, right? The questions we asked earlier, if God is on the throne and the authority of his Christ has come, why does evil still threaten and oppose and seduce us, right? Why does the world still reject us and remain skeptical of us and even around the world persecute our brothers and sisters for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus, right? If Christ has come, Why are our sisters and brothers being slaughtered and left in the streets? Even this morning, 13 Christians are killed for their faith each day. Not just killed, they're killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. Why? How long, O Lord? Why, despite the Lord Jesus' victory? Why does evil, why does sin, why does injustice, why does unrighteousness, and why does oppression continue on in the world? And again, the darkness in our own hearts. This is why. Because we live in this wilderness, a wilderness where there is an angry, evil one who is doing all that he can to kill and destroy God's world and God's people. And what John sees here, even in verse 17, declares to these seven churches and to us that until the Lord Jesus returns to throw down the dragon from the earth once for all, that we should expect from the dragon as we keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, what we should expect is more accusation as Christians, as God's people. What we should expect is more persecution, more slander, more reviling, more evil, more temptation to forsake the word of our testimony in this day and age. Because though defeated, the dragon is not yet dead. And until he is destroyed by Jesus, until the Lord Jesus returns to throw him, not from heaven to earth, but from earth to the lake of fire, he will continue to rage against God, and he will continue to seek to devour God's people and God's world. And maybe, again, this is another good place for us just to stop and meditate and reflect. Is there an awareness in your life of this reality? Is there an awareness... That lurking behind the headlines of evil and chaos in the world and in your own life, that there is a raging and wounded dragon. Church, to be honest, I don't think about this that often. The theological system I grew up in did not teach me to think about this very often. It taught me to think about a God who is sovereign over all, including evil. And I'm thankful for that because it's true. 
And yet, for these seven churches, when they needed comfort and strength in the midst of the wilderness, this is the vision God gave them. So whatever theological system you come from, this is important that we think about. And you even as you think about this, wonder how would your perspective change if you became, and maybe Advent's a good time to become aware of this, how would your perspective change if you became more aware of this dragon? How would your awareness of this dragon raging about in this wilderness change the way you view that wound that you received in that conversation with your coworker this past week? or your spouse, or your child, or your sibling, or your roommate? Right? How would an awareness of this dragon change the way you view the temptation to follow that clickbait at the bottom of that website that you were looking at last night? How would the awareness of this dragon change your expectations, if not your aspirations, about what this world, what this wilderness can really provide for you, and what you should compromise to get it? Church, I dare say that acknowledging and remembering that there's a dragon at work in this world and in this wilderness, it would change quite a bit about our perspective as we seek to endure together faithfully as God's people holding fast to the testimony that Jesus is Lord. And yet, family, the aim of this vision, as we conclude here, is not simply to make us aware of the dragon that's after us in the wilderness. The purpose of this revelation ultimately is to admonish us to resist the dragon in the knowledge that our God is with us, which is what Advent is all about. The with us God. It's what this vision is communicating, that God is with us, and it's admonishing us to persevere in light of this good news, this gospel that our God, our with us God, has in his fierce love. He has already come and thrown down this dragon through the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension of our Christ. And because he has done this, church, because our God has done this, as we move through Advent together, mindful that we live our lives in this wilderness, hunted by a dragon, we don't have to shy away from the darkness. Amen? We don't shy away from our Advent questions. Right? When you're sitting at Little Legend's funeral yesterday, you look it in the face and you ask the hard questions and you cry out to the Lord the questions that are in your heart. And we don't shrink back from our allegiance to Jesus because of these questions. And all of that's because we have this gospel. We have this vision that provides an eternal comfort and hope that the temporal comforts and hopes that carols and presents and Christmas trees and fireworks, even the best that the nation has to offer here in this great city, cannot provide us at Christmas time. We have a vision that holds forth to us the hope that God's deliverance and justice, it will overturn every crooked system. And it will ultimately protect every righteous person in this wilderness until they are in the land of promise. And at the center of this vision is a lamb who, though slain, he has overcome. The male child who the woman gave birth to, who was caught up to God and to his throne, is Jesus our Christ. The one who, as Psalm 2 said, is to rule all the nations with a rule of iron. And that is who we worship and adore. And even as we sing this last song, who we will pray, come Lord, come rule the nations with a rod of iron. And we sing this in the darkness together. Amen. Father, we thank you that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, has been thrown down. And they, like us, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And so, oh God, would you teach us as you lead us through this wilderness to love not our lives, even unto death. And I pray for Anacostia River Church, even as I pray for the Village Church in Denton and all of your churches here in this city and around the world, Lord. We pray that we would love not our lives even unto death. And in doing so, 
that we would follow after our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was born and who lived and who died in our place for our sins, who was raised and who is now exalted and who one day will return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The Spirit and your bride here says, come. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.